Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. This episode of Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Liz and Sam Newmark. Before we start, I know I always say to write to me, and I mean it, I love it, like, write to me, it's awesome. But I want to explain why it matters to me, and why we feature listener mail in our last segment of every podcast, it's called Israel Nerd Talk, hope you get there. Because it's not just me talking into a mic. History isn't just about me telling a story. Some of you have written the most incredible insights, even how you are personally connected with these stories, and that's my absolute favorite thing. So please, 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 please keep connecting with me. Shoot me an email, noam at jewishunpack.com. Okay, yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they're wrong. Remember middle school field trips? Too many kids piled onto a bus just absolutely out of their minds with giddiness about not being in school. There's just something about all those kids gathered in one place doing something new that gives them all that loosed from the cannon energy. Didn't matter where you were going either, by the way. A nature preserve, an Orioles game, a museum. I remember very few details about these childhood field trips. But I do remember one extra special field trip. Getting up ridiculously early to travel from Baltimore to New York City to participate in the Israel Day Parade. This is exactly what it sounds like, by the way. Jewish kids marching down the streets of New York, waving Israeli flags and singing songs. It was on our way to my very first Israel Day Parade that I first heard the names that would become a major part of my life. Because at some point in between the chaos, the adults shut us all up long enough to tell us about four strangers a million miles away. Their names were Zachariah, Yehuda, Tzvi, and Ron. Names that any of us could have had. I knew several Zachs, a Yehuda or two, at least one Tzvi, and I have an uncle named Ron. But these boys weren't my age, and they weren't on their way to a parade. They were IDF soldiers who had been missing for about as long as I'd been alive. And yet there they were, invisible ghosts on a bus full of young American Jews, reminding us of the heavy price of defending the Jewish people, defending Israel. I don't remember much of the parade that day, but I remember the stories of those captured soldiers. Zachariah was an American, just like us. He'd moved to Israel at the age of 10, just like half of my super Zionist middle school. Gone to yeshiva, just like I would one day. Joined the IDF, like a handful of my friends from my senior class in high school. But unlike anyone else I knew, Zachariah had manned a tank during one of the worst battles of the 1982 Lebanon War. A battle in which 21 IDF soldiers died, another five taken prisoner. Two of the missing soldiers were later returned to Israel alive, but Zachariah and his fellow soldiers Yehuda and Tzvi 
were not so lucky. By the time I heard their names in 1996, they'd been MIA for 14 years, vanished without a trace. And then there was Run, Run, shot down over Lebanon in 1986 and presumed to be held by the Lebanese. No, the Syrians. No, the Iranians. No, he had died in captivity. No, he was alive. A decade after his capture and still no one knew a thing. And in 1997, we added another name to the list, Guy Heather, a 20-year-old soldier who went missing in the Golan Heights and hasn't been seen since. By the time I reached high school, these names were like a litany. A camp I went to in Israel that summer even gave us all dog tags etched with all five names. Literally and figuratively, Zachariah and Yehuda and Tzvi and Ron and Guy stayed close to our hearts. We prayed for them in school every Monday and Thursday when we read from the Torah. We would say a special prayer or Misha Berach for these soldiers who were MIA. I don't recall anyone thinking or believing they'd be returned to Israel alive. I don't remember that. But that's not why we prayed. We prayed because they deserved our prayers, because their families deserved healing, the tiniest scrap of closure, because of what it means for us in Baltimore, Maryland, to make sure we were connected to our Jewish brothers in Israel. And also because who knows the strength of prayer? Who knows? But when I pause, I reflect and say, it's a little insane, right? Can you name all the MIAs from your country's army? Because I'll tell you right now, I'm an American. My country's been at war for most of my adult life. But if there are any American MIAs in Afghanistan or Iraq, I don't think I can name a single one. Even high-profile cases of people who are basically kidnapped by other countries, the Brittany Grinders or Otto Warmbiers, don't command the same kind of power. Sure, we kind of know who they are. We may have heard about them and said, that's terrible. But I haven't seen... You know, so many bumper stickers with their faces or protests and rallies in their honor for years and years and years. I haven't seen mass demonstrations outside the UN or protest tents at the White House. But those bumper stickers and protests and rallies and marches and tents and social media campaigns, that's what Israelis do when one of their own is kidnapped. And that's what the Jewish people across the globe do as well. And it's important for us to understand why. Why do captured Israeli soldiers haunt the Israeli psyche? Why are kids 5,000 miles away wearing dog tags with their names? What makes Zachariah and Yehuda and Tzvi and Ron and Guy different, perhaps, than Brittany and Otto? And I'm not trying to minimize Brittany or Otto at all, but it feels different. And as we go through this episode, I also want you to think about this question. Is this collective fixation a good thing for Israel? Should the public sentimentality drive Israel's policy decisions? But there's another value at work here too. And that's the Jewish concept of pidyon shvuyim, the ransoming of captives. Yes, Jewish law has a heck of a lot to say about kidnapping, it turns out. I guess kidnapping was kind of common back in the day. Jewish scholars were unequivocal about the community's responsibility towards a captive Jew. According to Maimonides, aka the Rambam, the 12th century rabbi, doctor, philosopher, an absolute giant of Jewish law. This is his quote. This is what he says. There is no religious duty more meritorious than the ransoming of captives. And these words were echoed by Rabbi Yosef Karo by the Shulchan Aruch in the 16th century. And this is what he said in his Codex of Jewish Law. 
every moment that one delays unnecessarily the ransoming of a captive, it is as if he were to shed blood. Clearly, pretty serious stuff. Pidyon Shreem is considered a mitzvah rabba, a great mitzvah. And as former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said in 2022, redeeming prisoners is a Jewish value that has become one of the holiest values of the state of Israel. It defines us and makes us unique. We will continue to act to bring our sons home from anywhere. Listen, Israel is a secular state, but the religious injunction to redeem captives is hard-coded into the Jewish DNA. Why? I'm guessing here, but I chalk it up to two reasons. One is the principle of arevut, of belonging, of the Jewish people making sure they are literal guarantors for the other, and also to a couple thousand years feeling pretty vulnerable, subject to the changing whims of local leaders. For millennia, Jewish lives were disposable, cheap. We had no power. We had no one to rely on but ourselves. That's not the case anymore. The concept of Pidyon Shvuyim now has the backing of an entire government, an entire military, an entire intelligence apparatus. And so the question has never been, should the state of Israel ransom a kidnapped soldier? It becomes instead, what price is the Jewish state willing to pay? And make no mistake, the price is growing increasingly steep. Israel's enemies know exactly how to exploit this weak spot in the Israeli and the Jewish psyche. And that loops the question back around on itself. Does Israel's policy of bringing its captives home actually incentivize future kidnappings? Because the terrorist groups who kidnap teenagers operate under a sick calculus. MIAs are Israel's weak link, the country's most vulnerable soft spot. Imagine the least imaginative kidnapper in a bad hostage thriller. Who is he kidnapping to extort the hero? The kid? The wife? The brother? Terrorist groups use the same exact logic on Israel. You want to hit the country where it hurts? Kidnap their kids. Take a teenager, a young person, sacrificing years of his or her life to defend their state. Hold him for years and squeeze every ounce of leverage you can from your shiny young bargaining chip. An IDF soldier is everyone's daughter, everyone's son, everyone's brother, everyone's sister, cousin, grandchild, neighbor. And I don't know about you, but if it were my brother or sister or kid, I'd do anything to get them back. I'm a private citizen. I'm not the leader of a country responsible for millions of sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. And that's where it starts to get complicated. I'm going to tell you four brief stories, stories that give you a glimpse into the important stories of captured soldiers in Israel. Each illustrates a different facet of this no-win equation, and each explains a little piece of why Israel makes the difficult decisions that it does to bring back its kids. Number one, Ron, 1986. Ron Arad was 27 years old in 1986. He had a beautiful wife, a 15-month-old daughter, an unfinished house he was hoping to move into soon, and a promising career as a chemical engineer with a degree from one of Israel's top universities. Arad had served in one of the most prestigious units of the Israeli army, the Air Force. But like most Israeli veterans under 40, he never quite finished his army service. Every year he was called back for reserve duty. So when he was called back in October of 1986, he went. The mission was routine. Bomb a PLO target in southern Lebanon. Easy peasy. 
but something went wrong. One of the bombs rebounded on the jet, and though the pilot of his jet was able to parachute to safety, Arad was not. Wounded, he fell into the hands of the Amal militia, which, nerd corner alert, spent decades fighting the Palestinians. They also had beef with Hezbollah, but this was no enemy and my enemy is my friend situation. The Amal militia were not good guys. Arad was an Air Force navigator, a husband, a father, and at 27, still so heartbreakingly young. The Israeli government was desperate to get him back. According to Israeli journalist Ronan Bergman in his book Rise and Kill First, which I feel like I talk about all the time and seriously, all of you should read it, it's awesome, Israel launched, and I quote, the biggest search operation ever conducted in modern history for a single person. There was no stone that we left unturned, no source that we didn't enlist, no bribe that we didn't pay, and no scrap of information that we didn't scrutinize. But Operation Body Heat, yes, that's what it was called, and I'm sorry, but that name is gross, turned up nothing. Israel even kidnapped the former head of the Amal militia, as well as a member of Hezbollah, to try and find out what happened to Arad. Under interrogation, the prisoner suggested that Arad had likely been held in Tehran for at least a little while. But no one seemed to know where he was. Though Israeli intelligence concluded in 2016 that Arad probably was killed sometime in 1988, the search for him continues. In 2021, then-Prime Minister Naftali Bennett alluded to a recent operation to locate Arad's remains, an operation that has, once again, turned up nothing concrete. And now, at the time of this recording, it's 2023. Arad's daughter, Yuval, is 38 years old. More than a decade older than her father was when he went missing, a mother herself. The house her father began building when he disappeared in 1994, it stands empty, waiting for Ron to return home. It's a tragic story to be sure, and I don't want to minimize the Arad family's pain, but you'd be forgiven for wondering, I don't know, saying this hurts, but like, doesn't it, Israel have better things to do with its resources than track down someone from the past, a, a ghost if you will? It's a fair question, one that a number of Israelis have asked. Even Arad's wife, Tommy, has begged the intelligence community not to risk the lives of soldiers just to get her husband's remains. In her words, quote, We also ask that if it is discovered that Ron is not alive, that they don't pay a price to bring his body back. Not because it's not important to us to bring him home, but because we believe this message will save the lives of captives in the future. We have requested and continue to request that they continue to search for Ron as long as possible with the condition of no risk to life. And so the search continues, presumably. And why? Well, IDF Reserve Brigadier General Ephraim Segoli has some thoughts as to why Arad sticks in Israel's collective imagination. Okay, first of all, it's the, the halo of, uh, of an airman that uh, disappeared and the promise that we have to bring our, our uh, fighters, um, no matter where they come from, back home. And it was not done. This aircrew that was sent uh, to his mission was not brought back home. And it opened a trauma or a wound uh, in our society, which was much beyond the Air Force. Listen to that language. A promise, a trauma, a wound. It's as though the IDF has a contract with its soldiers. You defend this country and we will protect you. We won't leave you behind. And when that promise is broken, what is left? The fear that you or your son, your brother, your husband could be next. And in a tiny country that drafts the majority of its citizens, that fear is neither irrational 
or theoretical. It animates every operation, every raid, every skirmish, every intelligence gathering mission. How can a country ask children, teenagers some of them, to risk their lives without a guarantee that the state will do everything it can to bring them home, dead or alive? Rodorod has long since ceased to be just a person, just a man to anyone but his family. For the rest of us, he's a symbol of a promise not yet fulfilled. One that the Israeli government is still trying to rectify. So that's the story of Ronarad, a name that's been with me for 25 years. Neither the first nor the last of Israel's captured soldiers. Less than a decade later, Israel would experience another collective trauma. But this time, the tragedy had a resolution. Number 2, Nachshon, 1994. Remember our episode on Oslo? Link is in the show notes. But here's the gist. As the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority took tentative steps towards recognizing each other's right to exist, terrorist groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad stepped up their reign of terror, murdering 37 Israelis in 1994 alone. Among the most traumatic of these operations was the abduction of 19-year-old soldier Nachshon Waxman. Waxman was the third of seven sons in a deeply religious family in Jerusalem. His mother was born in a displaced persons camp to two Holocaust survivors and moved to Israel in the 60s, certain that the Jewish state was the only place for a Jew to be. She was proud of her son serving the IDF. Like his older brothers, Nachshon was determined to serve in an elite unit, and he ended up in a prestigious commando unit called Orev Golani. It was in his capacity as an Orev Golani soldier that Nachshon was called to attend a training course up north. He left on October 9th, 1994. Two days after Nachshon was supposed to have returned, his family got the worst call I can possibly imagine. Israel Television had gotten a videotape from a Reuters photographer. Could they come to the Waxman's house and show it to them privately before they broadcast it to the public? Stunned and horrified, the Waxman's watched the tape, which showed their son tied up and held at gunpoint by a man with a keffiyeh wrapped around his face. The man held up Nachshon's ID and rattled off his information. Address, ID number, and then with a gun pointed at his head, Nachshon spoke to. I'm being held by Hamas, he said. Please free Sheikh Ahmed Yassin and 200 other Hamas prisoners, or else I'll be executed on Friday at 8 p.m. For a refresher on Ahmed Yassin, check out our Hamas episode linked for you in the show notes. Israel had four days to figure out what to do. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin told the world in no uncertain terms that he would not negotiate with terrorists. The Waxmans, who were American citizens, reached out to anyone they could, including representatives of American President Bill Clinton. Even Yasser Arafat got involved, calling up the Waxmans and personally assuring them he'd leave no stone unturned to find their son. I remember being nine years old watching this story unfold. We were watching, but it kind of felt like praying in front of the 25-inch box TV in my parents' bedroom. The days passed agonizingly slowly. 24 hours before Nachshon's planned execution, 100,000 Jews showed up at the Kotel to pray. Nachshon's mother later described the scene. Hasidim in black frock coats and long side curls swayed and prayed and cried side by side with young boys in torn jeans and ponytails and earrings. There was total unity and solidarity of purpose among us. Religious and secular, left-wing and right-wing, Sephardi and Ashkenazi, old and young, rich and poor, an occurrence unprecedented in our sadly 
fragmented society. That same night, Rabin and Arafat won the Nobel Peace Prize for their work on the Oslo Accords, an odd and bitter irony considering the ticking clock. Unbeknownst to anyone, the elite Sayyarat Matkal unit was gearing up to rescue Nachshon, who was being held in an Arab village inside Israel, barely 10 minutes from the Waxman's home. But the operation was a failure. Nachshon was being held behind a solid steel door that the unit failed to breach. With the element of surprise lost, the unit heard the gunmen shooting Nachshon dead. Though Sayyarat Makal managed to kill three of the Hamas men, they lost another one of their own in the firefight, the team's commander, Captain Nir Paraz. It was a national tragedy. Thousands attended Nachshon and Nir's funeral, and every day of the Shiva, the traditional week-long mourning period for the family, Israeli radio began its broadcast with the words, Good morning, Israel. We are all with the Waxman family. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Abin defiantly addressed the press in a news conference. This is part of a policy of fighting terror till its bitter end. For the six days of his captivity, Nachshon was everyone's son, everyone's brother. His family appealed to the country, begging them to pray to light Shabbat candles to get just a little closer to Judaism in honor of their son. And the country complied. In a span of four days, Jews across Israel sent the Waxman family over 30,000 letters describing the mitzvot they were taking on in Nachshon's honor. It was beautiful, and it was heartbreaking. Like the case of the Ma'alot massacre, yes, link is in the show notes, the Nachshon Waxman story shook Israel's confidence. This was the country that once rescued Jewish hostages from Uganda, link in the show notes. The country that had sneaked into Lebanon, dressed in drag no less, to blow up PLO installations and come home without a scratch. Again, the link is in the show notes. But in trying to rescue a soldier, someone's son, everyone's son, the government had accidentally sentenced another of Israel's sons to die. Was this the price of a rescue mission? Was this the price of a soldier's life? Nachshon never made it onto the dog tags with Zachariah Yehuda Tzvi Ron Gai. In his case, there was no uncertainty. He had been missing for six days and now he was gone but you'd be hard-pressed to find an observant Jewish kid coming of age in the 90s who didn't know his name. And the legacy of the failed rescue operation to bring home one of their boys would haunt Israeli leaders for years. So next up, a story that feels very familiar, but also very different. Number three, Elchanan, 2004. Elchanan Tenbaum wasn't the most stand-up guy. I feel gross saying that considering what he went through, but it's true. When he wasn't serving as a colonel in the IDF reserves, Tannenbaum was searching for his next shady deal, mainly revolving around drugs. And unlike the others on this list, he wasn't a kid captured in the line of duty. He was a 54-year-old businessman in serious debt, who willingly flew to an enemy country under a fake passport to conduct what he thought would be a lucrative drug deal. He didn't know that the guy arranging the deal, an Arab-Israeli he'd known all his life, was working for Hezbollah. He certainly didn't expect to be beaten with a club, sedated, packed in a crate, and sent to Lebanon where he'd languish for over three years. Israelis were, let's say, conflicted about Tannenbaum. Of course, of course, no one particularly liked to think of how Hezbollah might treat an asthmatic 50-something Israeli Jew with deep knowledge of the IDF. But the wellspring of sympathy and support, the demonstrations of bumper stickers, they were tellingly absent. Tannenbaum hadn't been defending his country when he was taken. 
he'd willingly traveled under false pretenses to an enemy country to discuss his potential role in flooding Israel with drugs. He didn't feel like Israel's son. If anything, he was Israel's slightly embarrassing, sleazy uncle. I don't remember an outcry about Tenenbaum. Fewer bumper stickers and fewer mass protests. And still, Israel paid a steep price for his safe return. In 04, then-Prime Minister Ariel Sharon orchestrated a controversial prisoner swap for Tenenbaum, trading 435 Lebanese and Palestinian prisoners, as well as the remains of three deceased IDF soldiers held by Hezbollah. Many of the prisoners were convicted terrorists, and most heartbreakingly, according to the head of the Mossad, the prisoners freed in the Tenenbaum swap went on to kill an additional 231 Israelis. Was this the price of Tenenbaum's life? 231 Israelis? Murdered by terrorists who should have been behind bars? It was a calculus that would dog Israel over the next few years, and especially during perhaps the best publicized kidnapping case in Israel's history. Which of course leads me to story number four. Number four, Gilad, Ehud, and Eldad, 2006. The summer of 2006 was a bad one for Israel. Just one year after the Jewish state unilaterally disengaged from Gaza. And yes, we have an episode on that. Check it out. Tensions were high on the border. Military intelligence suggested that Hamas was planning to abduct a soldier. But no one could have predicted that this abduction would be the first of three that summer and that the nightmare would last for years. June 25th, an army base in southern Israel close to the border with Gaza. The eight Palestinians who crossed underneath a fence separating Gaza from Israel took the base by surprise. They killed two soldiers, wounded 19-year-old Corporal Gilad Shalit, and dragged him to Gaza. His flak jacket was later found hanging on the fence through which he'd been dragged. Israel retaliated immediately. Operation Summer Rains destroyed Gaza's power station. Gaza was sealed, its neighborhoods ransacked. Israeli tanks and armored infantry units massed near the border with the Gaza Strip today, and intensive diplomatic efforts continued to try to gain the release of an Israeli soldier. 19-year-old Corporal Gilad Shalit was captured early Sunday in an attack on an Israeli border post by a group of militants, including members of Hamas, which now leads the Palestinian government. But despite arresting dozens of Hamas operatives, Israel learned little of Shalit's whereabouts. As the southern border burned, the northern border simmered. Hezbollah, the Lebanese terror group, had no intention of letting Hamas have all the fun. On the 12th of July, Hezbollah fighters infiltrated the border into northern Israel and ambushed an Israeli army patrol. In the attack, three Israeli soldiers were killed and two were captured. The captured soldiers were Ehud Golvasser and Eldan Regev. Hezbollah quickly whisked them away into Lebanon. Are you keeping track? There were eight names now on the dog tags. Zacharia, Yehuda, Svi, Gai, Ron, Gilad, Ehud, Eldad. And this time, the abductions came with a death toll. Because aside from launching Operation Summer Rains in the south, Israel also responded to Hezbollah's provocations in the north. With rockets pouring in from Gaza and Lebanon and three soldiers kidnapped, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert needed a decisive response. Hezbollah wanted to capture soldiers, then Olmert would show them just how much those two lives would cost. The strategy, in his words, was simple. The boss has gone crazy. Here's military analyst Yoab Limor explaining the rationale. 
Hezbollah didn't plan that Israel will, will go crazy, and he didn't plan that Israel will begin a war. We heard Hassan Nasrallah speaking later of miscalculation, and if he would have known, he wouldn't have attacked Israel, etc., etc. He wouldn't have kidnapped uh, the two soldiers. But Hezbollah did capture the soldiers. And here's the thing about the boss going crazy. Sometimes it doesn't work. Hezbollah may have had their regrets at the end of the war, but Gilad, Eldad, and Ehud were still missing. And no one knew a thing about their status. Were they alive? Were they okay? It was the kind of uncertainty that the families of Zachariah and Yehuda and Svi and Ron and Gai had been living with for decades. That punishing, crushing, rip you open from the inside anxiety. That burning need to know. And the entire nation felt it. The country seemed to mobilize within minutes. Gilad's parents, Noam and Aviva Shalit, went from anonymous private citizens to the country's biggest celebrities. Ehud's wife, Karni, shocked the world with her poise and determination, even traveling to the UN so she could accuse Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad of war crimes. My name is Karnit and I'm the wife of Goldwasser that was kidnapped by Hezbollah to Lebanon more than a year. And you're the responsible for this and you, by your support. I'm asking, how come you're not allowing the Red Cross to go and to visit them? How come you're not sending us a sign of life more than a year? How come you're not answering me? Ahmadinejad was silent. And after a bit of a kerfuffle in which the Iranian president ignored all questions that seemed even remotely pro-Israel, Karnit was escorted out by UN security. The Goldwassers and the Regevs and the Shalits did everything they could. After two horrible, arduous years of back and forth with Hezbollah through a German intermediary, after meetings with world leaders and demonstrations at the UN and endless Facebook campaigns, yes, Facebook was a thing then, Ehud and Eldad's families had their answers. Unfortunately, they were sad ones. Because Ehud... And Eldad killed. They were dead from the start. The whole time that their families were agitating for their release, begging for a sign of life, they were unwittingly begging for bodies. Bodies that came home in 2008 in exchange for five living Lebanese prisoners, as well as the remains of 200 Lebanese and Palestinian terrorists. Yes, Israel keeps the corpses of prisoners too. You need leverage when you're negotiating with terrorists. Among these living Lebanese prisoners was Samir Kuntar, who we've talked about in another episode obviously linked in the show notes. This was a guy who, as a teenager, shot and drowned a young Israeli father and bludgeoned his four-year-old daughter to death with the butt of his pistol. And now here he was, walking free. Even in the Knesset, it was a controversial exchange. Member of Knesset Yuval Steinitz publicly criticized the deal. We are playing to the hands of our enemies. This is very much in favor of our enemies' interests, and it will encourage them in future cases. And whether you agree with Steinitz or not, there was some truth to what he was saying. Because three years after Ehud and Eldad came home, Israel signed another controversial deal, the most expensive one of all. In 2011, after five years of demonstrations and protests and rallies and negotiations, Gilad Shalit finally came back home alive. The price? You want to hear the price? Here's the price. 1,027 prisoners, including many serving life sentences for murdering Israelis. The heads of the Mossad and the Shin Bet had advocated strongly against the deal, compiling a report that showed that 45% of released prisoners 
resume their terrorist activities the moment they're freed. Mayor Dagan, the head of the Mossad, was particularly fervent, reminding anyone he could about the Tenenbaum deal that later cost the country 231 Israeli lives. And yet, 79% of Israelis cheered the Shalit deal. Their boy was coming home. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you that I was just as overjoyed, just as relieved. When he was released, I found a live stream of his homecoming and stayed up all night to watch him come home. Tears in my eyes. A decade later, the entire country cheered when he married his longtime girlfriend in the summer of 2021. But Israelis weren't the only ones cheering Gilad's homecoming. Palestinian leaders were watching closely, and they liked what they saw. Shalit had fetched a high price. Imagine what Israel would pay for the next abducted soldier, and the one after him, and the one after him. A 2011 Telegraph article summarized the thought process nicely, quote, For many Palestinians, particularly in Gaza, the release of so many prisoners from one man is evidence that Israel responds only to threats, making the path of peaceful negotiation espoused by Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, and his moderate Fatah party nonsensical. The people want a new Gilad. The people want a new Gilad, chanted the tens of thousands who gathered at a Hamas-sponsored rally in Gaza City to welcome home the freed prisoners. A decade after the prisoner exchange, Ashraf Al-Ajrami, the former PA Minister of Prisoner Affairs, noted that What happened in this Gilad Shalit deal with the Hamas was a victory for the Palestinian people and also was a big achievement for the Hamas movement. It's an uncomfortable truth. I hate thinking about someone like Samir Kuntar going free, being greeted like some kind of conquering hero. And I hate thinking about the fact that Israel has an obvious weak spot. I'm not the only one. In fact, all the way back in 1986, the IDF implemented a shadowy controversial plan called the Hannibal Directive. But what is the suicide of a Carthaginian military commander from the second century BCE have to do with anything? Well. The IDF's Hannibal Directive, which is both shadowy and subject to constant amendment, is as follows. Do everything you can to avoid getting captured. If you see a comrade getting abducted, respond with force, even if you're putting them at risk. All targets are legitimate if you're trying to stop a kidnapping. The logic of the directive is that a dead soldier is better than a captured one. There's no ambiguity with a dead soldier, no agonizing anxiety about whether or not they're alive. There's no prospect of a dead soldier spilling state secrets, and there's less pressure for a high-profile prisoner exchange. Trading terrorists for live soldiers? That's tempting. Trading them for coffins? Less so. In fact, Hamas still has the bodies of two IDF soldiers, Hadar Golden and Aron Shaul, killed in action in 2014. But unsurprisingly, the directive is controversial, and news of its existence only reached the public in 2003. No one wants to think about Israeli soldiers, brothers, potentially killing one another rather than being taken hostage. And though IDF Chief of Staff Benny Gantz said in 2011 that the directive does not permit soldiers to kill one another, this directive is still mysterious and vague enough to be controversial. In fact, during the 2009 war between Hamas and the IDF, one commander instructed his troops. I don't need to tell you this, but no soldier from the 51st Battalion can be kidnapped, at any cost, not in any circumstance. That can mean that a soldier should detonate his hand grenade and blow himself up together with the person trying to abduct him. Hannibal Directive indeed. To this day, no soldier has been saved through the deployment of the Directive. So what's the calculus here? Die rather than be taken alive? 
get taken alive and later traded for hundreds or thousands of prisoners with blood on their hands, get taken alive and languish for years? The Knesset understands how tangled and agonizing this calculus is and how high the stakes. In 2014, three years after Gilad came home, the Israeli parliament voted 35 to 15 to stop these disproportionate prisoner swaps. It wasn't personal. Everyone was relieved to have Gilad back home. But the IDF had just arrested 60 of the prisoners released in the Shalit deal. Israel was wasting resources, catching terrorists, and already put behind bars. Now, the law didn't prohibit all prisoner swaps, but it did make it harder for the worst of the worst to go free. A prisoner serving a life sentence can no longer simply have his sentence cut short. To be considered for a prisoner exchange, he must have already served 15 years. It doesn't sound that prohibitive, right? But the law acknowledges that these disproportionate prisoner exchanges might be more damaging than helpful. That there's a gray area here. Because where's the line between ransoming a captive and giving in to a terrorist demand? Between saving one life and endangering so many others? Some Jewish scholars point to the case of the Maharam, Rabbi Mayer of Rothenburg, who was kidnapped by King Rudolf I of Habsburg in 1286. Side note, where did they to do, right? The king demanded an obscene amount of money for his release, and though the community would have been willing to pay for it, the Maharam point-blank refused. I'm not worth it, he said. We don't ransom captives for more than they're worth. But how can you put a price on a human life? What is a single Israeli worth? And who gets to decide that? Their mothers, their fathers, their husbands and wives, their government, the will of the people, the heads of the intelligence agencies who calculate the risks of freeing terrorists? The Maharam decided his own worth for himself. He died in prison after nearly eight years in captivity. But Zachariah and Yehuda and Svi and Ron and Guy and Gilad and Ahud and Eldad, they didn't get to decide. And neither do Avirah Mengitsu or Hisham al-Sayed. Uh, who you ask? I'll tell you. They're the fly in the ointment, the wrinkle in the story. Because you see, there are two more living Israelis being held captive in Gaza. Mengistu was 28 years old when he crossed voluntarily into Gaza. Israeli soldiers watched him go and assumed he was an African refugee, perhaps from Eritrea or Sudan, sick of life in Israel. But Mengistu is a Jew. He's black, he's poor, he's deeply mentally ill, and he's being held in Gaza under unknown conditions. And like Mengistu, Al-Sayed was a mentally ill man in his 20s when he crossed voluntarily into Gaza in 2015. And like Mengistu, Al-Sayed is a minority in Israel, a Bedouin citizen. A cynic might note the discrepancies between their cases and those of Zachariah and Yehuda and Svi and Ron and Gai and Gilad and Ehud and Eldad. Some might say that the others are white, at least two have dual citizenship, Zachariah is an American, Gilad French. Could the government be neglecting the cases of Mengistu and Al-Sayed due to their demographics? But a less cynical person might point out that Mengistu and Al-Sayed wandered into Gaza of their own accord, that they weren't kidnapped soldiers. Like Al-Khanan, and unlike the others, they did this to themselves. Both had been exempted from the army, Mengistu because of his mental health challenges, Al-Sayed because he's Arab, and both had a long history of mental health concerns, of leaving their homes for days on end without a word to anyone. No one forced them into a dangerous position, no one sent them to fight a war or patrol a border, knowing they might not come back. While some have accused Israel harshly of racism and also of neglect, I think it's a less than fair take. To start, the Israeli government has negotiated with Hamas to bring home Mengistu and Al-Sayed, the deals have fallen through, just like the first few iterations of the Shalit deal. As to why the Israeli public hasn't rallied behind their cause? Well, it's the same reason that no one was really printing out bumper stickers that screamed, Bring Elchanan Tenenbaum back! 
Tenenbaum, Mengistu, and Al-Sayed were the architects of their own captivity. That doesn't mean they deserve to be held captive, God forbid, but it does explain the attitude of the general public, I think, because I genuinely believe that if Mengistu and Al-Sayed were of sound mind, if they'd been captured as soldiers, their names and faces would be plastered everywhere in Israel. And again and again, it's proven itself more than willing to make ridiculous sacrifices for even a scrap of news about captured soldiers, including mounting a Mossad fact-finding mission in 2019 to gain some information about Rona Rod. 2019! That's 33 years after his capture. Because every soldier is one of our boys, and Israel will do anything to get them back. So that's the story of captured soldiers, and here are your five fast facts. Here's number one. Pidyon Shvuyim, or the ransom of captives, is considered a great mitzvah. And yet, over the centuries, Jewish scholars have debated whether it's appropriate to pay an exorbitant ransom for a captive. Number two. But this isn't a theoretical question. The official policy of the state of Israel reads, the government will do everything in its power to secure the release of POWs and MIAs and to bring them home. Number three. The Israeli government doesn't negotiate with terrorists. Unless it does. The government has negotiated the return of POWs with enemy states since the War of Liberation in 1948. And terrorist groups know that Israel is definitely willing to do, shall we say, disproportionate exchanges. Number four. Over the years, Israel has released thousands of prisoners, including convicted terrorists, to get back captives. The most famous of these is Gilad Shalit, abducted by Hamas in 2005 and held until 2011. And number five. Critics have pointed out that the policy only further encourages terror and argue that the Israeli government should not make the policy decisions based on emotions. Still, nearly 80% of Israelis believe that the government should ransom captives at any cost because for better or worse, the Jewish people are a family and you'll do anything to get back your family. Those are the five fast facts, but here's one enduring lesson as I see it. If you've ever been to a Shabbaton, and even if you haven't, just... Hear me out. But you know eventually, after the sun has gone down on Saturday night, there's a strong chance that someone's going to pull out a guitar and start strumming the opening chords of the Jewish summer camp classics. L'Shana Haba, Kol Haulam Kulo, A little Tov Lehodo, L'Hashem, Maybe Al Kol Eile. Listen, inevitably, when everyone is feeling sentimental and a little high in life, they loop their arms around each other's shoulders and start swaying to the minor key refrain of Achenu. I'll spare you my singing. And here's a beautiful version. Our brothers, the whole house of Israel, who are in trouble or captivity, whether on sea or on dry land, may God have mercy on them and bring them from distress to comfort, from darkness to light, from slavery to redemption, now quickly and soon. Let's say amen. And that song, no matter who is singing it or where, encapsulates this episode. It's in that first word, Achenu, our brothers and sisters. That means the entire house of Israel, regardless of language or culture, skin color or socioeconomic status or political affiliation. This sentiment is encoded in our Torah, the Hebrew Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't be jerks to each other. That's like a, a loose translation. The book of Exodus even describes how the Jewish people accepted the Torah as one, with one voice. And that's because, as the Talmud tells us, all of Israel is as a single soul. All of Israel is responsible for one another. And now, for the first time in 2,000 years, that sentiment has institutional backing. 
The state of Israel was established as a safe haven for any Jew in distress. And as we talk about often, the Jewish state takes its responsibility seriously, risking Israeli lives to rescue Jews in danger. The Mossad has flown to Uganda to rescue Jewish hostages. Airlifted Jews from Yemen and Ethiopia launched a series of revenge attacks for the murder of Jewish athletes at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Israeli volunteers have flown to the Ukrainian border to help get Ukrainian refugees to Israel. But why? After all, Israel is a secular country. It isn't bound by biblical injunctions. And let's face it, these missions are dangerous and expensive. So why would the state go to such lengths to help Jews across the world? Why would the army or the intelligence services endanger its people to rescue a single hostage? Why would the government free thousands of terrorists just to get back one young soldier? I've been thinking a lot about this question. All I can offer is my own take, which I learned from my barbers, Avi and Alon. Two Israeli guys living in South Florida. We end up schmoozing every time I'm in there. I tell them what I'm researching for this podcast. They politely try not to laugh at my Americanized Hebrew accent and teach me new slang words. It's beautiful. And I was curious. I wondered if maybe I was exaggerating, wondering if I was really telling the truth when I say things like, Israelis are all family. So I asked them, Avi, alone, what do you think about the prisoner exchanges? Do you think that we should be giving this many prisoners back for Gilad? They looked at me like I was insane. And finally, they answered. In this tone of affectionate disbelief, like check out the idiot American. As though they were telling me the most obvious thing in the world. Achi! Hey, Machim! Bro, they're brothers. That was it. That was my answer. I wasn't being sentimental. I wasn't telling myself some cute story. These were Israelis who had left their home, who had chosen for whatever reason to make their lives elsewhere. And yet, across thousands of miles, they felt it. They're our brothers. So we'll do whatever it takes. Achenu kol beit Yisrael. Thank you all for listening. Now it's time for our final segment, Israel Nerd Talk, where we highlight one of you, our amazing listeners. This week, meet Harley. Harley wrote, Hi, Noam. Hi, Harley. I live in Jerusalem with my husband and two kids. I listen to your podcast while taking buses to work. I listen to your podcast while cooking Shabbat food in my kitchen. I listen to your podcast while going to the supermarket and shopping for Shabbat food. And each time I listen, I fall in love with Israel all over again. Your podcast reminds me why I live here. Your podcast reminds me why I wanted to make Aliyah. Why, when I left Israel when I was 19, it felt like I left a piece of me here. To me, Israel and Jerusalem are home. And just like any home, there are ups and there are downs. There are the most positively awesome moments and there are the most negative, sad moments too. And listening to your podcast reminds me to appreciate my country. It reminds me to be thankful for all the people who fought to make our amazing country what it is. And Israel may not be perfect, no country ever is. But at 75 years young, we are pretty freaking amazing. And your amazingly fantastic podcast reminds me of all that. So thank you for taking the time to make this podcast. Harley, wow. Yes, Israel is not a simple place, but I love your perspective. Maybe it's not perfect, but it's amazing. And it's home, even for those of us who haven't literally made our way there yet. So thank you, Harley, for writing in and putting your love of Israel into such beautiful words. And to everyone else listening, I'll say as always, if you have thoughts, comments, ruminations, whatever, share it with me. Don't hesitate. Be like Harley. Contact me at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and shoot me an email at noam at jewishunpacked.com. This episode was produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes the great, magnificent writer Adi Elbaz, and our editor, 
Rob Perra. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening. See you next week.